This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, I'm Mukul Pandya, Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton, the Wharton School's online business analysis journal. Welcome to From the Backstreet to Wall Street, a new podcast series we created in partnership with Impact Investment Exchange. My co-host is IIX founder Doreen Shanaz. In our first episode, we will speak about how financial technology, or fintech, is breaking barriers to build financial inclusion around the world. We'll be talking to Yu Kiat Fang, Vice Chairman and CEO of Credit China, and after that, with Edward Herman, Co-Founder and Chief Product Officer of LegalZoom. First up is our interview with Mr. Fang. Mukul, this is wonderful that uh, we have embarked on this uh, program uh, with Wharton and Impact Investment Exchange, and uh, the series that we have started now called uh, From Backstreet to Wall Street. And, uh, you know, this is a wonderful way to sort of, um, you know, get Wharton and uh, connect Wharton and Wharton alums and also the wonderful work that's happening in the finance space and bringing it all under the whole umbrella of, um, frankly, democratizing the markets and also creating opportunities on the social and environmental side. So um, so today we have with us um, an amazing person, um, Mr. Yu Kiat Peng who is uh, the Vice Chairman and CEO of um, Credit China FinTech. And uh, basically, Fang has uh, single-handedly, um, you know, I would say, has shaped the whole uh, FinTech space in China very effectively. And now, of course, he's expanding that, um, um, you know, beyond China. And today's discussion, Fang, welcome to the show. And, um, you know, we're absolutely thrilled to have you. And uh, Mukul and I will be, you know, just, having a chat with you in terms of what you have done with Credit China and how we can be, um, you know, sort of learning more from you and how do we sort of bridge the different worlds together. Um, Mukul, do you want to add something before we start on? Uh, no, Doreen, that, that's, that's great. Please, uh, 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 let's launch right into it. Hi, Fang. So I think what would be a good start is uh, tell us a little bit. Tell, tell us about how, you know, how you sort of created Credit China FinTech, because Credit China was a traditional bank, um, how you created it, you know, what it really means for in terms of, uh, you know, the space, how it's grown in China. Um, t- tell us a little bit more. Sure. Uh, th- thank you, Doreen, for, for the very kind introduction. Uh, just just one small point I, I need to point out. I did not build the, 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 the company single-handedly. I think it's through a lot of collective effort by, by the entire team. Uh, that, that's the first point of clarification. Uh, sure, back in 2013, okay. the, back, back in 2013 um, I was uh, given a, a chance to lead a, a small public listed company, a finance, public listed finance company in Hong Kong, in, into the next wave of growth. Um, the, the traditional finance company that, that uh, I was drafted into is called Credit China, publicly listed in Hong Kong. At that time, they were doing traditional lending. Now, um, there, there were a couple of constraints with regards to a uh, finance company. Number one, uh, by the capital. Number two, by the type of revenue. It's only uh, interest spread revenue. Number three, Typically, uh, the quality of the customers are pretty uh, lower grades compared to the banks. So I, I needed to find a, a different way to, to make myself competitive in the marketplace. And back in 2013-2014 era, um, I saw the, the, the increasing adoption of uh, technology and payments. Uh, in China, in particular. So what what I then did was let the company first is to acquire a, a third-party payment license in China, 100% owned, and gradually from there uh, form the basis of uh, a financial solution uh, 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 in in China. Now I st- I first started with with the thoughts about financial inclusion. Now, today, China has uh, 
approximately 1.4 billion people. Now, of this demographics of 1.4 billion people, the people who have actual access to real banking facilities and banking services, there are only approximately 400 million of them. Now, what, what about the, the rest of the billion people? Now, 500 million of the, the, the children uh, below the age of 18 and, and above the age of 70 typically are not entitled for bank loans. So you, you're left with another 500 million people uh, that, that are grown and brought up in the rural area, in the villages. Now, these people, when they come into the city or back in the villages, they typically don't have access to bank facilities. Now, we're talking about people who, who mix between anything from 200 to 500 US dollars. So, right. uh, in the traditional banking model, it is quite difficult for people to have access to real banking services. So, at that point in time, our, uh, the, the, the strategy was to think about how can we bridge these gaps and potentially offer uh, solutions to bridge the gaps. So it's about financial inclusion. And, and gradually, we start off with a very uh, simple third-party payment system, the equivalent of a PayPal in America. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, we offer uh, people in, in this uh, investment uh, to offer them wealth management product, online wealth management products. The way, the way which we have uh, tried to offer from a product end, the product angle, we, we were controlling the risk to make sure that the, the products that we put online uh, are manageable, the risks are manageable. So for the first two years in, in 2014 and 2015, I wasn't looking at building a business. I was looking to how to make the entire ecosystem around online wealth management work. And, and the focus was that. I, I remember in 2014, in the first quarter, uh, we only have uh, 8,000 people signing up in, in the first quarter. And then in quarter two, at the end of June in 2014, from, from 8,000, we, we added, to, uh, in total, we have 29,000 registered users. Uh, and in third quarter, we then gradually launched an, an app in China on the mobile phone, and we, we get traction, and, and we had 200,000 at the end of quarter three. Uh, and together with some of the incentive program and marketing program, come year and we had drawn in our first million registered customers. My goodness. And so from 8,000, yeah, so, you grew to, to a, a million in within a year's time. That's right. Uh, the, a million registered user. So approximately right. at that time, 50% of them from the registered user have actually successfully converted into becoming... Uh, active user. That means they have completed at least one transaction and and more. And right. and and I I have remained fairly disciplined and focused from there to 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 remain the same way and and make the the uh, traction uh, uh, deeper and and ensure ensure that all all the different parts of the ecosystem are are well oiled. And at the end of the second year we have approximately 5 million registered users. And, uh, well, and, and from there, I have then um, uh, come back to the drawing board, back to the board, after uh, close to 24 months of execution. And I went to the board and told the board that, actually, if we look at everything that is happening across in the fintech space, now, fintech is a very big, term and in, in, in our board, we have subdivided fintech into 11 different categories, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, including lending is one category, cryptocurrency is uh, one category, tech is a category, uh, online payment is a category, etc., etc. So I went right. back to the, think, to, to, to the board. Let me just in- 
Right. Let me just let me just um, because this is so amazing. I mean, Mukul, you know, if you you know, we have sort of talked about similar things, I guess, before, but this really is we're seeing this in action. Um, you know, which is trying. You just literally, when you started off, you said, "I'm going to take that 500 million who don't have access to banking and who actually do not have access to any of the banking privileges, you know, savings or, or so on and so forth, and no one's touching them, I will bring them to the market. So that is, you know, off the bat, I mean, that is incredible. So you have really sort of the goal really, the purpose really was to give opportunity and financial service to people where they really didn't have it. So this is really sort of the ultimate financial inclusion. And then, you know, you basically start off with giving them financial service, which is, you know, helping them save money and giving them interest. And I think, and then you touched on something which I thought was very interesting, which is creating the ecosystem around it. So what's really interesting is the fact that you took on the homes of 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 a public company, which obviously was a very traditional bank, and you start off sort of saying, I'm going to bring this whole new group of people who have, don't have access to banking, um, and I'm going to actually make this into a whole new business. I mean, I mean, how did, I mean, why did you think of that? Why was financial inclusion so important? Um, I, I had the privilege prior to taking on this task, uh, I have the privilege of working in commercial banks across Asia, uh, uh, 20, for, for close to 20 years of my earlier career. And, and I had the privilege of uh, working for two multinational banks in, in Asia. Uh, first is Standard Chartered Bank, and the second one is DBS Group. Now, in these two institutions, I've, I have uh, learned, uh, I've worked in both wholesale banking, retail banking. I have been in this institution uh, in, in, in the role of doing acquisition. And I have then realized that um, a lot of these uh, major commercial financial institutions have a very tough fixed cost base. And, and there I, I had the privilege of leading a financial company, not a bank, a financial mm-hmm. company. And and I have I, I don't have the baggage of of the branch cost, and therefore right. I thought it was also time with with the availability of of the smartphone, okay, to to try to experiment and try to do something which which would which would be able to bridge that that gap. And and that was where it first started. Right. So, you know, what's very interesting is, um, and uh, Mukul, it would be interesting to get your thoughts on this, because I think what's very, uh, for me, what's so refreshing to hear is the fact that here's the CEO of a publicly listed company, and, um, you know, China market value is what, about almost $4 billion U.S., who basically looked at a problem um, which obviously affects, you know, hundreds of millions of people um, who are would be defined as poor, but really looked at it as a business solution and said, okay, I will use technology as a means instead of saying, okay, you know what, um, this is a great way for me to uh, get on the technology revolution and make tons of money right away. Um, I mean, it, it's it's fascinating for me to sort of, and so refreshing for me to hear this. I mean, uh, what do you think, Mukul? Yeah, of, of I, I, I so think. You, you, uh, so, th- thank, thanks, Doreen and 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 uh, Pang for your for your uh, for your comments. Uh, and and uh, I I think uh, uh, China, China, what's happening in China with fintech uh, is uh, remarkable. Uh, in a few years, it has become the world's largest market in fintech. Uh, and one of the things that I was very curious about uh, and would love to know what uh, Mr. Fang thinks about it is uh, there are so many large players in China's fintech market. I mean, there is Alibaba with Alipay uh, and, and uh, you know, there's Ant Financial, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, $60 billion, I think, uh, is, is the market cap of that. 
there's also Tencent uh, that has entered uh, the market in a very big way and is hugely dominant. Uh, one question is, how does uh, Credit China's strategy uh, position the company in this broad fintech space uh, among all these uh, behemoths who, who are uh, uh, in, in the industry? And, and what role does your financial inclusion strategy play in, in the way you see this market evolving? our experience uh, back in 2014 uh, the marketplace was still in its infancy um, obviously I was trying to play on uh, Credit China strength each time when we go into the market we first of all will need to uh, draw the customer attention that we have we are a public listed company we are just not a a financial startup with minimum capital layout. Point number one: uh, the the fact that we we have uh, we are publicly listed company, the corporate governance structures is in place, and we do have some strategic shareholders in play, and that have also uh, I I try to uh, play up that, that part uh, on the marketing to to ensure that uh, the the initial marketing pitch to our potential customer will be within the first minute, they, they would get immediate uh, uh, trust into the company. Now, uh, up to today, we still offer our brand new customer, first-time customer, to, to in an attempt to do online wealth management with as low as 100 renminbi. That is fifteen US dollars, uh, and and for the first timer who come in, we will also offer them a one-off uh, privilege of getting uh, a, a return in a short span of three weeks. Okay, just to give them a flavor that, that to to understand the entire process of investing online, how easy is the process uh, going to be? Now. Uh, we have adopted a, an approach uh, instead of competing head-on with uh, some of the mega players in in the country. We have selected selectively positioned ourselves in areas where we do well. So uh, the initial product launch were asset back uh, asset back uh, investment product. So. It is uh, people who, who, who pledge their property, uh, um, SME owners who pledge their properties to, to give us the, the uh, opportunity uh, to, to securitize their, 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 their loans online. That, and, and that gives people a lot of comfort because every single asset that comes online on my platform initially, it was uh, collateralized by uh, property. And then uh, gradually, when, when that uh, channel gets uh, more matured, we, we then launch a second type of product. And the second type of product is uh, supply chain related uh, loans. Uh, that that is in itself also gives people very uh, simple to understand for investors. And, and that have actually uh, helped us in, in our initial uh, launch in, into the marketplace. Today, uh, among the brand, branded uh, uh, so-called platforms, uh, we are recognized to be uh, one of the more mature players. Uh, Credit China FinTech, uh, through its subsidiary, uh, is registered as one of the uh, permanent member in the National Infom uh, National Internet Finance Association permanent member. So we are one of the four chosen permanent members in the association to work with closely with the central bank, PBOC, uh, to uh, draft out new uh, regulations 
to govern that particular industry. So, so along those lines, we have systematically, uh, but but steadily, map out a series of of, of those uh, approach to to get us to where we are today. Um, so Frank, just adding on to that, I mean, uh, one thing that you mentioned is. Um that part of your success was obviously looking at the market a little differently than the other big players, um, you know, in China. And one of the things you mentioned is this whole asset-backed security where um, the property was used as the collateral, you know, for the loan. I'm assuming this is your peer-to-peer lending. Now, yes. a lot of the your, your um, client base, obviously they're, you know, um, quite poor, now, in terms of how did that, you know, how how did you match the two? Because they may not um, even have the property, or is, is it even registered? And this is China, um, you know, where again property ownership is a tricky one. So how did you how did you maneuver all this? Uh, at one stage, in order to help us to quickly promote uh, uh, the use of the platform, uh, what what we have done is we we have uh, designed a short uh, uh, video clip uh, of about two minutes uh, presentation to introduce the entire concept, what is peer-to-peer lending, what is online wealth management, and what are the uh, uh, things to look out for in terms of finding a, a suitable online investment platform and why should they work with us in in the two minutes, uh, uh, it was a sand drawing script design to to explain to our target customer. That was what we did, and we have found that to be very uh, useful because very often, um, uh, if you are playing a video script, uh, it is the 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 target client will will just watch it for two minutes. But if you were to uh, stand in front of a group of target clients. Uh, the moment that you you start your uh, presentation or start your explanation, there'll be question that pops up in their mind, and before before you get to address the problem, uh, you get interrupted. So so one of the things that we we, we found useful is to uh, compress a very complex issues and try to narrate it in a short video presentation. Typically, cannot be more than, based on our experience, more than three and a half minutes, or else you lose the attention span of your target client. Oh, that's very interesting. So basically, so educating the client base is the first step, you know, it sounds like uh, was a big key to your, to your strategy. Uh, it is important because at, at that point in time, the the um, uh, back back in 2014, 2015, uh, the this this whole entire approach of online online investment uh, was new, and also there are many of this such company that were not designed properly uh, have in a very short period of time went bust. Uh, between between the period of twenty mid twenty fifteen uh, till probably end of twenty sixteen, uh, on average every month there are about hundred uh, online wealth management platform or peer to peer lending company in China that have gone out of business. Okay, a hundred platform that gone out of business. Wow, so there were there were a lot of players. So they came up very quickly and they went bust very quickly. And you think part of the Correct. reason was the fact that they just couldn't engage the client base effectively. Uh, there, there, there are a couple of reasons. Um, uh, in in China, unfortunately, it is not a very developed market. I have to say that based on statistics published uh, or gathered, uh, of the uh, in by percentage uh, out of the uh, 100 companies that, that have gone out of business, there are approximately 15% of them are Ponzi scheme companies that were set up. There are about uh, 30% of, of the companies, uh, they, they, they could not sustain their business model. 
there's about 50% of the company because of risk management became an issue on the asset side and therefore they, they are not able to repay uh, the money that was raised uh, back to their investors. So, so these are the uh, few uh, key problems that, that were uh, commonly found in the marketplace. And and so so it was important to understand and ensuring that um, uh, we have the right uh, understanding of the market and then uh, addressing the client's concern, basically. Now, I, I wonder if I could uh, uh, jump in with a question uh, uh, related to what you just said, uh, Mr. Fang, and that is, you know, the, my understanding is that the growth of China's fintech industry initially was supported by an open and uh, open regulatory environment. Uh, but basically, if you look at what you just described with the number of companies involved in Ponzi schemes and fraud and going out of business, uh, how is the regulatory environment changing now? And is, is it uh, becoming better for fintech companies uh, to be able to, uh, that, uh, that want to do business ethically to do so? In, in 2020, let me see, it was uh, January uh, 20 in January 2016. Um, all the uh, they are all together. Um, they are all together. Thirteen government departments have came together and published a uh, guidance note uh, against for the fintech operators in, in China. Now, inside that, that a joint publication in, that was published in January 2016, uh, it have actually, the State Council have actually recognized the importance of fintech. It have also legitimized uh, the, the existence of fintech. And the third thing is then they, they have assign that responsibility of this uh, fintech regulation uh, through this 13 joint government departments. So come uh, late 2016, uh, between the central bank and the uh, 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 Ministry of Commerce, they started to go in to understand which are the operators uh, which have been given, uh, giving, giving uh, investor excessive returns. And because you know that uh, there's, there's in, in the financial world, that it's very difficult to have excessive return in a sustainable, continuous way. So what, what then the uh, Ministry of Commerce together with the uh, Banking Le Regulatory Commission, jointly together with the uh, local police, uh, they all came together to try to sift out the, the real operators from the potential Ponzi scheme operators. Uh, and that have found to be but, fairly effective. So would you say now, Fang, then, you know, based on... Um Kind of the regulatory sounds like the, the changes that happened and, uh, and sort of the the security uh, groups also getting involved. I mean, do you think the market has shaken out and the players who are there now, you know, they are pretty much there to stay? Um, I no, I well, I, I, we, we we have done a, a few studies at, at, at the board level. Uh, and at the company level, we realize that um, when, when you look at the internet industry and if you look at the sub-segment, uh, literally in every sub-segment uh, in terms of growth, uh, uh, take for example, I, I talk about internet sub-segment and we talk about uh, search engine. Now, 15 years ago, you, you would experience in China a wave of uh, uh, heavy growth in that space. We call that wow-wow growth, right? Where, where it is at the infant stage, 
and and people uh, who are looking to participate will just come into that space. Now, that that wow growth for every internet sub segment business will go through approximately anything from 18 to 36 months. Now, after the the wow growth phase, uh, typically uh, you will go through a phase of consolidation. And that is where the the real operator will 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 become more recognized, and the user from the industry will will typically only want to use this few platforms services. Now, as you go through the the next twelve eighteen months or twenty four months, you go through a phase of consolidation. Now, it is in the phase of consolidation where people who are still burning cash in the company and offering their service over the internet will gradually fizzle out. Now, it's no different from the fintech business, when, but when I talk about fintech business, we need to qualify ourselves into different, different sub-segments within the fintech space. So today, anyone who is trying to get into the China uh, fintech space just imagine if you start off today and you do not have uh, uh, more than uh, a million registered users and today you, you don't process more than 10,000 transactions, the chance for you to be able to, to penetrate into that space, it is extremely, extremely difficult in, in my own experience. So for the fintech space, it is it have gone through that wow, wow growth and currently the industry is going to a phase of consolidation. So eventually, you will end up with maybe the top 50 operators in the space will, 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 will remain. If anyone who is not among the top 50, for them to, to still remain in that space in three years from today, the chances is extremely low based on experience. I'm only sharing some of uh, the thoughts and experience that, that we have concluded from our own earlier study. Uh, right, right. I, I, I think we may have to, uh, in the interest of time, we may have to to wrap up in a moment, but you know, I, I, I did want to ask one, one question uh, uh, looking to the future. In, it's true that fintech solutions have delivered financial inclusion to uh, millions of people, uh, what are some of the main challenges for uh, in China to for fintech to help reach universal access to finance, and how can those challenges be overcome? Mughal, if I may add to that, sure. so given this the last question um, is uh, Fang, I would always also adding to that is looking at the opportunity within sort of sorry outside of China and in the rest of Asia. So what is sort of what is your plan and what do you see the opportunity is for financial inclusion through fintech? So these are the last well, two questions. Yeah. Uh, the the first first dimension I, I, I look at um, is when when we look at the fintech space, uh, there are a few uh, do domineering challenges. Uh, first is the regulatory environment in all different jurisdictions, they are still evolving, okay? So for, for operators in that space, uh, they need to be adaptable, and, and that is critical. We cannot assume, unlike uh, traditional banking, where the regulation has been in existence for a, a very long period of time, and it have been it have proven in through different economic cycles. Uh, many of the fintech operating environment, the regulation around it, is still uh, evolving. Now we we must also uh, remember that um, the digitization of currency to some of the governments, uh, depending on jurisdiction. They may not be comfortable with this, that, that idea of taking the physical notes in distribution and convert them into something digital. Now, uh, the third component of challenges that is uh, uh, faced by the fintech, evolving fintech 
uh, business is the the advancement of technology. Uh, while while fintech solutions will be lagging behind the physical uh, mobile mobile phone technologies, but you still need to keep up with pace because solution can be customized. Uh, things can be changed uh, 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 along with with the, those evolving technologies. For example, uh, some of the fingerprint reading uh, options, uh, facial expression recognition are technologies that that is evolving in into the marketplace. Uh, uh, frankly, uh, in in our loan business, uh, just to share with the audience, we are prototyping. Uh, using using facial uh, uh, recognition technology to partially profile the borrowers whether uh, we want to lend to this category of borrowers. Okay, there are such technology that is in place that are being being tested in in our laboratory today. Um, so so we have some of these challenges and uh, the second question that Doreen have asked is our, our plans. Um, we, we are hoping to be able to take some of these uh, more developed solutions, proven solutions, and gradually uh, roll out into a market with, with opportunities to, to adopt to our, our technology. You need to remember uh, that mobile phone, a brand new mobile phone, a brand new smartphone, this day uh, could be made available uh, in a third world country uh, at a retail price as low as 50 US dollars. And now the 50 US dollars handset have almost exactly the same functionality uh, to that of a $600 uh, uh, main, main brand uh, smartphone. Now right. with, with this uh, cheap availability of uh, mobile handset and and three G network and and LTE network across uh, the world, uh, it would actually allow uh, some of this technology to be to be made available in this country. And Credit China today is actively looking for partners at the, on the local ground level uh, to to take advantage of the regulators. Uh, 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 or the regulation availability to, to participate in that space. Wow, that sounds very exciting. Well, thank you so much, Bang. Really appreciate it. Uh, Mukul, thank you so much. This is, this is fantastic. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you, Doreen. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, really appreciate yeah. your insights. Thank you all. Our next guest on this segment is Edward Hartman. Edward is a California-based entrepreneur and a co-founder of LegalZoom, which is a web-based platform that includes prom uh, promotes inclusion and aims to make legal help accessible to average Americans. Uh, Eddie, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much. Uh, we're, we're hoping that that does not that it's not limited to Americans. Uh, but that we help people worldwide. Actually, we have a, a pretty large presence in the UK right now. Mm -hmm. uh, hello to all my UK friends. Uh, and I should also mention that currently, I'm the entrepreneur in residence at Simon Kutcher Partners, which I'm I'm very proud of. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate sure. it. Uh, Doreen, uh, can I t turn to you to ask uh, to start us off? Sure, sure. So, um, Eddie, thank you for being on the show. Um, and as you know, this is... Uh, you know, this is an interesting um, sort of collaboration between IX and Wharton, where we are uh, really sort of trying to talk to um, experts like yourself and how we sort of connect the back street to Wall Street. And I think, you know, Legal Zoom has done an incredible job, and I would say starting off that what we call sort of the financial value chain you know, in terms of how do you actually um, help create SMEs and get them on the path of growth of getting uh, that financial, you know, that capital flow into those organizations. So, so let me start off with my first question to you, which is, do you really see yourself as that way in terms of, um, you know, the company you founded in, uh, in terms of really playing such a big role 
um, in the whole fintech you know movement in the U.S. I mean, how do you see all of this fitting in? Oh, uh, so absolutely, and thank you for starting it off that way. Uh, you know, we're super proud of the fact that so many businesses choose to start at LegalZoom, and we feel that this is our mission: democratizing law, uh, democratizing law for everyone, from a householder to someone who wants to copyright a story that they just came up with, or somebody who wants to patent an idea. It really doesn't matter. We want the benefits of law to be open to everyone. But one of the very first needs that any new business has is how the heck am I going to keep this thing running? The oil of commerce is money, capital. And so where do I get it from? This is, I'd say, one of the big three questions, along with, you know, how do I spur demand, of course, uh, and how do I um, make sure that I run my company in a compliant fashion? But it, it's really, it's right up there. How do I have sufficient uh, gasoline in the tank to, to make my company work? And this is why so many of the new businesses that start, uh, not just at LegalZoom, but really anywhere, need financing first. Financing is tough. Um, it, it's, a, it's a big problem. And it's not just, of course, for uh, you know, SMBs, as we say in the U.S., or SMEs elsewhere. It's a problem for everyone. I, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here, uh, Doreen, and I'm going to say that you're, since you're Wharton grad, and I am too, you have a bank account. True or false? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to guess that you have a, uh-huh. a, a piece of plastic somewhere on your person that enables you to take money out of that bank account when you need to. Mm-hmm. And that is just not yes. true for so many people. You know, that is, right. that is a fun. You know, we, I think we, we fail to understand the privilege that we have just by saying, well, my money's safe in a bank account, and I have a piece of plastic that allows me access to that money whenever I need it in a safe and secure way. It's really just not true for so much of the world. Of course, it's not true for the developing world, and you hear that a lot, but it's also not true for people right here in America, people who are trying to start businesses and simply can't get it banked, simply can't find but a secure way. But having said that, Eddie, if I may, if I may interject, sure. um, mm-hmm. you know, many people have financed their businesses through credit card, right, paying an exorbitant interest rate. So, so this is a good segue into the whole fintech market. Do you think it's really giving access to capital in a more... Um, I would say humane way, in the more uh, with the lower interest and uh, more access. Yeah, and okay, so let's 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 examine that for a second. Uh, what we're talking about now was once called peer-to-peer lending. Uh, these days, I know the Vogue term is marketplace lending. It all boils down to the same thing, which is really two major factors. The first of which is that the money is not lent from an institution but instead from a network of people who seek alternative returns. And the second factor is that it's done in an automated fashion, which typically avoids fees. Interestingly, I think most of the attention has been on the former factor. You know, hey, this is, it's right there in the name, right, peer-to-peer. This is a group of individuals who want to lend to other individuals and are willing to take some uncertainty and repayment in exchange for potentially better returns or alternative returns, returns with a lower beta, whatever it is that they're going for. Um, And the second factor, this idea of lowering overhead, making things run more smoothly, and therefore being able to return some of those savings to investors or to, you know, the the borrower, I think that's been, you know, underlooked, uh, an understated feature. Uh, But in reality, what I'm seeing is it's being flipped on its head, and I'll explain why. More and more, more and more uh, peer-to-peer lending is actually being done by institutions. You know, there used to be these articles that would trumpet, "Oh, this is going to disrupt banking. Say goodbye to your bank. Peer-to-peer lending is is the way forward." Well, two things have happened, of course. One, the risk of default turned out to be not exactly what people thought, uh, and so early studies on, for example, Prosper, one of the big platforms, showed that the default rate was actually higher than people thought. Uh, and I can provide citations on that. But I think more tellingly, 
banks didn't like the idea of themselves being disrupted. And so they got in front of it and actually are are now assuming, according to one report I read, 90% of peer-to-peer lending is actually done by the very same institutions that were supposed to be disrupted. Uh, And in fact, if you look at the board structure of any of the the largest uh, peer-to-peer lending firms, you'll see that the the, uh, traditional faces from traditional banking dominate the boards of these organizations. So I think it's a, it's a reality uh, has not been the same as the idealistic way in which the industry was started. That, is, that said, uh, you can still get lower rates uh, through the technological advantage, through the fact that the overhead has been pared down and that uh, so much has been automated. Of course, that too comes at a cost. The cost there, of course, is jobs at banks. But uh, you know, in, the, in, this, in this game, I'm seeing that peer-to-peer lending more and more is really institutional lending with a different face, and that it is really the technological advances that makes peer-to-peer lending attractive. But as uh, peer-to-peer lending becomes more institutional, uh, as, as you said, uh, do you see it leading to greater financial inclusion? Absolutely. And I think that, that's why uh, peer-to-peer lending is very exciting, because now we are uh, we're finding ways to expand opportunities to people who simply wouldn't have gotten those opportunities in the past. And again, I, I'd say, you know, and it's interesting, I question whether this is a function of who is doing the lending, or perhaps it's a function of how the lending is being done. So let me give you some examples. Uh, the the uh, Zest Finance, which actually supports a lot of Chinese lending, looks at 100,000 data points in, ter- in, ter- in coming up with your risk profile. And what that does, and by the way, some of these are, from what I've heard, they're highly unconventional uh, data points. However, what it allows the, the lender to do is to establish a risk profile for companies and, and individuals that otherwise really would not have had access to capital because they, it was simply impossible to assess uh, the repayment. Uh, and, and this is true also with uh, Ernest. I, uh, I, there's a Forbes article from 2016 pointing out that Ernest is really, really driving peer-to-peer lending way, way out there because of the, the algorithmic approach uh, and being able to extend downward to borrowers that otherwise wouldn't have been able to simply, you know, have access to capital. Now that said, as always, a lot of the better deals are being reserved for the very uh, the most creditworthy people. So you know, it's the old story: those people who uh, cannot afford or cannot get access to capital, I think, are sort of squeaking through the door, and that's fantastic. That that actually you know fits with my mission. But we also see that the people who didn't need the additional capital in the first place are able to get even better deals than they used to get. So there are a lot of invite-only uh, uh, peer lending, uh, particularly in the real estate space. Uh, and there is, you know, um, I think SoFi is a perfect example where really what we have here is a platform for people who already had decent credit and already could get loans, and now they can just get better loans. Right. So I think that's sort of interesting. So what you're saying is, um, so it is almost democratization of the, you know, I would say the, the financial inclusion through democratization of the technology. So that's sort of an interesting way of, of, of looking at it. And I think, um, you know, obviously it is, it's almost kind of gone in a full circle because the initial, I guess, the thought really was to bring people into the, the financial markets if they're not already there through fintech. And I think it is, it is um, you know, I do wonder if that's the natural cycle that the other countries will go through as well, because obviously that is, that's what we see is happening in the U.S. Now, in terms of sort of bringing in the other aspects, you know, in terms of uh, looking at the, the, you know, the social, um, you know, sort of the social impact and really making sure, say, the groups that are marginalized who wouldn't otherwise, you know, get capital. Do you actually see that's happening in terms of, of them getting access to more capital through fintech? Because now all of a sudden you don't have to show up in a bank to get that loan. So, 
you know, there's not sort of a, you know, prejudged uh, view about you. So it's really sort of data-driven. Um, so do you think, you know, that is sort of it's in some ways it's equalizing uh, factor is playing in there? I mean, I mean, I'm just curious because I think that's, uh, you know, that, that would be a big plus. And interestingly, people don't really talk about that. Yeah, so I think that we're, we're eliminating, in the fintech industry, we're eliminating friction on a number of points. And I think we're all showing potentially <laughs> the generation that we come from when we say things like people don't need to walk into a bank. It's true. Once upon a time, uh, people, and I've seen uh, newsreel footage of this, people actually walked into banks. And of it's course, still happening. Still, Trust me, the rest of the world is still happening. So. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding around. But, the, but really, the, uh, I think not only are more and more people getting access, uh, but many of the conceits that, that you know, we had once upon a time are simply fading away. You know, many people don't go into banks. Uh, even, you know, even I, I recall when, you know, check depositing required going into a bank. And of course, now it, check photographing is really all you need to do. So I think many of the functions of a bank have been turned into services and streamed in a way that makes it available to many more people. We all know the famous example of how cell phone growth actually is fastest in the developing world because there was no requirement for a landline. And I think we're seeing some of the same thing where, for example, in rural India, a lot of uh, new fintech is tested. There's actually a website uh, that, that tracks developments in fintech by looking at what's happening in the uh, sort of the, the outer-lying regions of the Indian market where a lot of this stuff is being tested. Actually, I have a very interesting thing uh, for your listeners, a, a nugget that I unearthed that just happened a week ago that I think is fascinating if you want to hear it. It's a, it's a real shocker. Sure. So, as you probably know, one of the um, most interesting areas is fund transfer. Uh, companies like TransferWise, Coin, uh, sorry, Circle, Coinbase, these are these are big or sorry coin uh, sorry circle anyway. These are big companies. Venmo. How about Venmo? These are big companies that focus on transfer payment from one party to another, and it's very exciting, of course, because you know this allows people to get the money that they need and to get the money that they that you know that they want to send to other people with a minimum of overhead. So it's fantastic innovation. However, let's talk about really pushing the boundaries of fintech. Uh, as of about a week ago, someone discovered uh, on this website that tracks innovations in the Indian market that WhatsApp is now going to allow people, as part of the, the normal service, to make a payment to a friend. So if you have someone in your WhatsApp uh, circle of friends, you can now immediately make a payment to them, if, of course, if you're in India and part of this test population. But the uh, Daily Telegraph or sorry, the Daily, UK Daily Mail, looked into the story, and, and this is within the last week, and said it's true. Right. It's going to be coming worldwide. So this is, so, how, so this is Facebook, um, Eddie, getting into now um, payment system, because WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, right? So that, that is uh, this, this sort of Facebook way of getting into it. Yes, and I think what a, what a shocker to the fintech world. Uh, you know, whereas a lot of us were looking to, you know, not necessarily Bitcoin, but blockchain networks to provide a frictionless delivery of payments. Mm -hmm. Wow. When, <laughs> you know, when WhatsApp, Facebook, when, when, when you can Twitter money to a friend, uh, I think we're going to start to see some real institutional movement. Now, a comment was made earlier. Is this just part of the normal cycle? Institutions, you know, things start idealistically and then inevitably institutions come in, they subsidize the industry and eventually wind up taking over control. Generally, that's the pattern. But now, looking at what might be done with a truly decentralized network, I mean, there, there's really nothing stopping a Facebook from becoming your bank. Right, right. Except regulation, which is obviously, you know, sort of... Uh, you're you're sort of uh, you know have done a very good job in the U.S. in sort of people helping people regulate that, and I think, and again, regulation does play a role in a lot of these places what institutions can and can't do, and I think that's also a good segue into 
I'm curious in terms of, you know, what you see in companies being formed and growing um, in terms of the whole kind of the gender lens. And I think, you know, it is, it is all of these exciting things happening, but are we actually leaving some people behind as we're moving forward? And I think that is always a good point to pause and sort of look at it because, um, interestingly, in, say, Bangladesh, where now it's actually, if you look at the payment system, you know, outside the U.S. and China, uh, one of the you know, two big markets is actually Bangladesh and, and Kenya. I mean, it's pretty crazy. But if you look at it, it's actually mostly men, you know, who are doing it, um, you know, 70% of it. And again, are women being left behind uh, in these advances? And how do we sort of, you know, how do we make sure this doesn't happen? I mean, what's your thought? Well, I will say uh, I, I really would like to return to the question of regulation and corporate growth. Fascinating topic, uh, as well as the will we be able to put the genie back in the bottle once it's out? Can, you know, can regulation, can government authority actually uh, tame this beast? And I don't know the answer, but I do, I, I'd love it if we could take a few minutes to talk about it. But first, to answer your question, um, I, I don't necessarily think that women are getting uh, a fair shake. Uh, and, and actually, just uh, just yesterday, I was reading about Elvest, E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T, started by the famous Sally Krawcheck. And this is a sort of robo-advisor, finance advisor, aimed specifically at women. And along with sort of content aimed specifically at women, it has a price tag aimed specifically at women, and that price tag is about double what men would pay for, uh, for other robo-advisors. And I have to say... I'm sure that wasn't uh, Ms. Krawcheck's intent. But when I looked at the difference in platforms and I looked at the difference in fees, I said to myself, why does, you know, essentially, and not literally, but draping everything in pink give you the right to double the fees? So I think, you know, we, we really should take a hard look at are these democratized systems truly fair and, and, uh, and even-handed for everybody, or are we... You know, charging a surcharge to people who can least afford to pay it. No, but those, those are you know those are uh, good questions to think about. But I think also you know obviously you are um, you know uh, in one of the experts in the in the whole technology industry in the pricing industry. You've, you know, you're a successful entrepreneur, and I think it's uh, you know it's sort of interesting to get your perspective in terms of now as this sort of the the fintech. You know, sort of, uh, I would say, movement is really taking shape globally. I mean, how how do you think we can sort of uh, make sure it's happening the right way in terms of having participants from every walks of society? Is it regulation? Does, do the you know, or is it actually um, creating ways of uh, people getting access to it in in, in mobile phone or any other uh, other devices? I mean. What's the way to make sure we have everyone sort of participating in this movement? Well, if I can unpack that a bit, I think there's a few questions uh, we have to address. And the first is, when you take uh, an enormous amount of power, and you know, let's let's call it what it is, democratizing finance is unleashing a, an enormous amount of power. It, not only taking pent-up demand and not only reversing inequities, uh, you know, in terms of who had access to capital and who could have their capital safeguarded and such. But when we also take it out of the hands of government, which is frankly what some of these financial systems are now doing, uh, yes, there's enormous power. We're giving enormous power to people who didn't have it. But there is a price. Uh, government regulation obviously has two sides. Yes, it introduces friction, but it also introduces uh, some safeguards. Many of the new financial systems you know, don't have those safeguards, and they're enormously powerful. Uh, I'd like to give you the example of Ethereum, and I don't know how much you know about Ethereum. It's a platform uh, that basically enables blockchain-based payment uh, and, mm -hmm. and blockchain-based uh, you know, investment, essentially. But... It, the, the trend has been away recently from initial public offerings in order to finance a company to what they call initial coin offerings. And they may seem totally disconnected, 
but uh, essentially, in this case, imagine an, an ICO, initial coin offering. Each coin is essentially a share of stock. So now, you, you know, if you have a company uh, and if you can attract sufficient interest, you can uh, issue, an, instead of an IPO, an ICO for really any amount, and you are completely out of the reach of the SEC. Now, the SEC actually just released a memo about a month ago saying, now, hang on, we stand the right to regulate this. But how, how exactly would the, S, would the, you know, the United States Security and Exchange Commission regulate something that is completely, uh, you know, as they say in the ether, it's, it's, it's outside, I think, of the grasp of most regulators. Now, it's enormously powerful. As a, a guy I know from Ethereum said to me, which do you want to bet on? The existing system, which is open on you know weekdays, five days a week, from eight in the morning to four in the afternoon, on some of the oldest software that we have running, or a system of investment in businesses that's open, you know, seven by twenty-four by three sixty-five, on some of the most secure and modern technology that the world's ever produced. Yes, the answer to that is pretty clear. But when you take things out of the grasp of regulators, you there's a dark side to that as well. Uh, and so we have to ask ourselves, what's the right balance of returning power to the people and yet having some safeguards against how that power is used, A, and B, is it in our control? Or has the horse already left the barn? Is there any way really now for us to get control again of this financial system, and if we could, would we want to? So in your view, how, how should that risk be managed, Eddie? You know, I, I wish that there was an easy answer. Uh, what, you know, in, the, in my ideal world, there would still be a level of regulation and oversight. So I saw a university paper that said about 10% of the investments enabled by Ethereum were in fact Ponzi schemes that took all the money from the people investing. And, of course, there's no recourse, and this is entirely beyond the grasp of any government. We also hear stories, of course, of truly, truly deplorable black market trading enabled by blockchain-based currencies that are, again, out of the grasp of regulators' reach. On the other hand, uh, how can we do anything but applaud the fact that so many people now are going to be able to safeguard investment, that they're going to be able to have a safe place for their money, that the money will be able to flow without friction, so, boy, is that a puzzle, isn't it? How can we balance the need for a fairly ordered society with the need for more people to have access to secure money? Uh, it's a real puzzle. Uh, well, that's a fascinating. That's a fascinating way to put it. Though I think just to, uh, you know, it's almost having that that opportunity, and yet the opportunity has such a price. Um, yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. Great yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's, it's freedom that comes at a price. There was one other risk that sort of has been uh, that I've been wondering about uh, as we talk about democratizing uh, finance through uh, uh, through fintech, and that is uh, and the whole premise is that we want to bring people who are not part of the financial services world into the financial services world by uh, you know providing services to the unbanked. Uh, populations, and that—that's a, a wonderful thing that is being enabled through technology. Uh, on the flip side, I think that the poor have had access to finance in the past. It was just at usurious terms. I mean, that's why I think subprime lending has been so profitable for those who did it, is because of the high degree of risk of lending to the poor. Uh, how, as we go into this brave new world of fintech and democratizing finance, how, how should that risk be managed? Uh, is, is there a way to bridge, that, uh, to bridge that gap? You know, it's funny that you should ask. Um, I'm lucky enough to know quite a bit about IIX, and I could not imagine a better question posed to them, frankly, because they are essentially the world expert in exactly that question. But, you know, I think, look, what we're really talking about is Yes, there's a huge unbanked population, and let's also remember these people reach maturity, you know, reach their majority every day, uh, and they face a question, which is how are they going to manage their finances? Are they going to, how, how are they going to make sure their money is secure? 
How are they going to make sure that they can have access to that money when they need it? How are they going to be able to get the capital required to, you know, just purchase a home or uh, run a business? And are they going to have to pay, as you said, usurious rates? Who, by the way, will define what usurious is once there is no uh, regulatory body that's centralized? I mean, these are all fascinating questions. But I will say the promise is huge. Why do I need a bank if I can put my money into a blockchain-based uh, currency where it's completely secure and out of the grasp of, of you know, any hacker, any, any robber? Uh, why do I need a bank if I can just WhatsApp uh, my money from place to place or person to person? Uh, now, with, these, with places like uh, you know, uh, Zest and so forth, that can look at 100,000 points of data about me uh, in earnest, uh, you know, in order to say, hey, let's develop a better risk profile. Now I can have lenders competing to say who wants to lend money to me. So there's, I think, enormous market potential, but I do worry about the lack of regulation and the lack of uh, safeguards. It, it all seems great until, of course, it doesn't. Excellent. Well, uh, I think that's... Uh uh, fa fascinating uh, insights and thank you so much uh, Eddie for, for speaking with us uh, Doreen any final comments from you? No I mean that was really extremely um, insightful and uh, I, I have learned so many new things about a space frankly we're operating in but just to you know get really the different perspective uh, across the spectrum and uh, you know this was fantastic so thank you so much Eddie really appreciate it and thanks for being on the show Great. Oh, my, my pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. And again, you know, I, I, I think that the idea of this show from, you know, the, the back street to Wall Street is fantastic. Uh, I really hope that people listen to the show and understand how important it is, especially right now. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.